It is a great honor for me to be able to introduce our very special guest today. Our hope and plan had been that John and Ellie Mumford would be with us today. Um, John uh, is, is ill and uh, uh, hopefully will be able to be with us on Wednesday. But I'm going to take 10 seconds and ask you to pray for John, that God would pour out healing on him and the Spirit would make him totally well. So, yes, Lord, we join our faith and agree together in the name of Jesus for John to be made completely well. Restore his energy. Um, his health to him completely, and uh, just uh, get him back on his feet full of uh, uh, vigor and joy. In Christ's name, amen. So uh, not all time is measured exactly the same. Um, not all friendships work uh, strictly according to that you know, time spent uh, measurement. In, in time as we normally measure it, I have only spent a, a little bit of time with John and Ellie, uh, I had a, a lovely ramen meal with them in the uh, Lower East Side and uh, a weekend of worship services last February out in Long Beach um, and several really impactful moments of prayer uh, with Ellie in particular. But I feel as if my heart has been knit to John and Ellie, um, that they carry a spiritual weight. Um, the, the Hebrew word for the glory of God is weight. And uh, there's, a, there's been a weightiness to my experience of the presence of God in their presence, which um, is a tremendous gift. And so I've been so excited um, to try to have them in to, to share with us. And Ellie's going to, to speak in just a moment. John and Ellie, uh, their life story is, uh, is an amazing one to hear. They uh, traveled and served with John Wimber in the early days of revival and the founding of the Vineyard Movement. Uh, they planted a church in London in the late 80s. Um, they have led in Vineyard UK and Ireland and then Vineyard International and literally spend their lives traveling to churches like ours and all over the world, different denominations, and just uh, making a deposit of faith and grace and inviting people to trust uh, their hero, Jesus, and to walk in the fullness of the power of the Spirit. As someone was asking me uh, you know, what was going on this weekend. I was saying we were having special guests into our church, and I just said, uh, uh, John and Ellie are powerhouses of love and encouragement, and um, that has been my experience of them. They are also um, experienced and mature prophetic leaders. And my, I, uh, I really believe that uh, Ellie has something to call us into as a church um, that we will experience new freedom in and walk in together uh, in the days and, and, and months and years to come. So I uh, have a lot of faith for um, how God moves uh, through her life. And so she's going to be teaching today, and then uh, according to the answer to our prayers uh, in faith for John, she and John will be leading an, uh, an equipping event on Wednesday night, walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, if you're interested in coming to that, there is still space, um, but don't delay. Uh, TGCParkSlip.com slash Holy Spirit, um, and you can register for Wednesday night. We'll be down on Fifth Avenue at where our church first started, uh, Park Slope uh, Christian Tabernacle. So come relive the old days uh, in that space, and I hear from John and Ellie. So um, will you please, uh, with snaps of encouragement, welcome Ellie. Thank you. That was an extraordinary introduction. Maybe, it actually made me feel quite tired to think we do all that. <laughs> I mean, honestly, it was extremely generous, and I thought it was the sermon. I really did. It was so amazing. <laughs> well, good morning. Good morning to you. I'm here on behalf of John and me, and I'm glad they put that photograph up because you can see he is amazing. I mean, what a looker. And um, he went to one of those, it wasn't well yesterday, went to one of those emergency doctors that you can find on a street corner. 
I mean, it's amazing, this city. It was a new experience. And he walked in and explained how he was feeling. And they said, no, we can help you straight away at a price. Well, of course, we don't do that. We don't know about that. We have something called the National Health Service. So John came back, came back to me and he said he wasn't feeling well. And he said, but it is going to be such and such. And I said, John, just stop for one moment. If it were me, what would you say? Okay, so he turned around and went back. And at a price, got everything that he needed and is now on powerful antibiotics and will be up and running, if I have anything to do with it, by Wednesday. <laughs> So there you go. Thank you for your prayers and indeed for your affection. And it is a sweet thing, actually, in the kingdom how you're, you're right. I mean, measure, uh, friendship is not measured in hours spent or even in proximity, as it turns out. But there is something that God does between various people in the body of Christ. And John and I would say yay and amen to everything you've said. And we feel very involved. I mean, we've been, we visited here more than once. We snuck in at the back once or twice and we've loved it. But I've never seen it from this angle. And look at you all. I mean, what beautiful people. All incredibly good looking. Very intimidating. You could all do this quite as well as I can. But this is a very remarkable church. And I can come in from outside and tell you that because your reputation does go before you. You are well spoken of across the city. And indeed, I suspect, further afield. And certainly we all met together in California. Even there, they were talking well of you. And if I have anything to do with it, which I do, they talk very well of you in the United Kingdom. So it is, I know it's a funny thing, but it is important. And Paul made a point of saying it was vital that we, we are of good reputation with outsiders. And your reputation, my brothers and sisters at TGC Park Slope, is a fine one. And therefore, it's a particular joy to be with you. And thank you for having me. We have recently, it's just within living memory, although only just, of course, been celebrating Christmas, that time when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood, as we are told. And we call it, of course, the Incarnation. And you can hardly remember it because it's all six or seven weeks ago. But we celebrated the fact that the physical embodiment of God himself came to earth in the form of a baby, born in a stinking stable, in a very obscure little town, in a distant, unknown part of the world. He took on the form that we could recognize. T.S. Eliot rather put it rather eloquently, the word unable to say a word. And that was him. And he arrived as a baby, and he became a little boy, and he became a grown man, and he walked the earth for only 33 years, and he was Emmanuel, God with us. And of course, we paused for long enough at that point to acknowledge that this life-changing, history-determining, cataclysmic event took place. And Jesus went on to change our world and to determine our destiny. I would even presume to suggest there are men and women in this room this morning whose own destiny will be determined by what do you do with Jesus? It's the beginning and end. It's the only thing in some ways that I ever want to talk about. He is an absolute hero. He is quite extraordinary. He is history-changing, destiny-determining. H.G. Wells was both a writer and a historian, and he said this. He said, I am a historian. I am not a believer. I think this is so impressive. I just, it just comes from nowhere. I love this electronics. I've had a clue what to do. And then it makes you look so good. <laughs> I, knew, I knew that. 
I am a historian, he wrote. I am not a believer, but this penniless preacher from Galilee is irresistibly the center of history. So why do we not continue to celebrate? Why stop? Why stop? So my whole thesis this morning is to celebrate Jesus, my hero and yours, and to remind you that Jesus is utterly amazing. That's my bottom line. That is my major thesis. And I want to look at all that Jesus is, the penniless preacher who is irresistibly, inarguably, the very center of history. I want to talk about what he is, what he does, and then lastly, and rather tantalizingly, what does he call us to? Think of some of the names that we read from in the, in the scriptures. He's the bright morning star, which speaks of his brilliance, his glittering, his sparkling impact and personality. He's the Rose of Sharon, which speaks of his sheer beauty. I'm a, a part of a system of churches called the Vineyard, and we have a, a wonderful worship writer who's just written the most beautiful song, one of the greatest hymns, I believe, of the modern era. And it's called, Let All Things Rise and Bless Your Name. And it was written by a man who came out of the Amish originally. And then he read a book by Tom Wright, Surprised by Hope, on the new heaven and the new earth. And then he took a year to write this single song. I commend it to you if you don't know it already. But the lovely thing is that it starts with the creation. And it goes right through to the new heaven and the new earth. And the killer line of Jesus is, your beauty arches above it all. Jesus is so beautiful. And his beauty arches over everything. He was the son of David, he was the son of man, and that reminds us of his earthly heritage. He was the lion of the, troop of, Jida, of the tribe of Judah, so he was the great victor. But he was also the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He was the sin bearer, the lamb that was slain and now stands in the center of the throne was our Jesus. But he only won that victory at a very high price of course, by becoming a victim. So we sing again, all glory to you, the slain and risen king. The paradoxes, the balances, the beauty of it all. His names are many and they tell us much, but consider too some of his claims. He, this amazing, riveting historical figure, he speaks of himself and he says to those groping in darkness, wondering what is the point of all this? What is the point of it? He says, I am the light of the world. To the hungry and the desperate, he says, I am the bread of life. I satisfy, I can sustain. To those confused about life with no sense of direction, and don't tell me there's nobody in this room for whom that does not apply. Life is incredibly confusing, incredibly difficult, incredibly demanding. It stinks, it's hard. And he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I can lead, I can guide, I can keep you safe. And to those struggling with loneliness and despair, and what is more of a common problem than both in New York and in London than loneliness? We live in crowded cities that are deeply, poignantly lonely. One of the greatest gifts that we as a church have to the community is friendship, noticing, smiling, engaging, talking with. I had a whale of a time with an Uber driver this morning. I really didn't want the journey to end. It was so sweet. 
And he's a man who drives all night long to sustain his young family day by day. Just so sweet. And of course, he made the big mistake of asking me what I did and where I was going. Well, I mean, open goal, I thought. But it was just lovely. But you know, this is a man who's lonely for 12 hours a day. I was, I was telling one of you, this is, I'm going to have to be careful, but we have a man in our church in London who is a top partner, the youngest partner ever of a top, one of the top five law firms in London. I mean, uber, uber clever, the word I choose advisedly. And he took time out. I mean, he's paid thousands and thousands of whatever for 15 minutes of counsel. He took it all out. He took two or three weeks or months even off. He trained as an Uber driver. He took to the streets of London so that he could tell people about Jesus. He put all his career on one side, and he went off and he just told people about Jesus right and left. And I love that. I love it. And it has nothing to do with what I'm saying. Oh. <laughs> but I leave you with that thought. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am everything. And to those that are lonely, he said, I am the good shepherd. I do accompany you. I do love you. I do protect you. I have Welsh in my background. And the story is told of a little Welsh shepherd boy during the days of the Welsh revival, probably 1904-1905. He was a very, very simple little fellow. He had no education. And the only things he learned were the things that were taught him in chapel. And he went to chapel during the revival, and he was, because he was a shepherd boy, he loved, he loved the language, they told him about the 23rd Psalm. And they explained it to this little fellow in words of one syllable on the hands of, fingers of one hand. The Lord is my shepherd, they said. The Lord is my shepherd. And this little chap, he could, he could cope with that. Lord is my And he learned it. Well, that winter, he went up into the mountains with the flock late in the autumn, and they were caught out by a freak storm, and they never came back. And they were sealed up into the mountains by this huge snow. And only in the spring, as the snows melted, was the little boy and his flock found. And they found this child, and his right hand, little frozen corpse, was holding his left finger to the very end. True story. The Lord is my, my, my shepherd. He will never leave me. He will never forsake me. He will never, ever let me down. And at the end of it all, through all the storms, through all the snow, through all the frozen bleakness, there is eternal life with my shepherd. So Jesus was all of those wonderful, wonderful things. And to those yearning to belong, he would say, I am the vine. You are the branches. Have you ever seen a vine? It has a trunk. And then it has branches and tendrils and twigs, and they all interweave, and you cannot see one from the beginning of the other. And Jesus used that illustration advisedly because he said, that's how I am with you, that's how you are with me, intimately, intricately involved. And of course, to those fearing death, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me shall never die. How do people do life? let alone death, without Jesus. John and I have buried people over our years of ministry, old people, young people. I've watched children follow the coffins of their mummy up an aisle in a church. How do people do it without Jesus? It is insufferable. It is unendurable. It's unimaginable. Because Jesus says, I am. I am the resurrection and the life. There is no fear. And it is the ultimate fear of all of us. 
And then, of course, when he spoke himself to the churches in the book of Revelation, he said these stunning things. He said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, he said, I'm alive. These are the words of him who is holy and true. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful, the true witness, the ruler of God's creation. He was unashamedly sure of who he was. I want to show you a painting. Now, this is where it'll be very clever if it comes up. I want to show you a painting of the Sistine Ceiling in Rome. Oh, there it is. Difficult to see, I grant you. It looks much better in real life. Um, but it's to illustrate a point. I used to teach history of art, and I used to go and visit Rome and places in Italy. And this is an extraordinary piece of painting, painted by Michelangelo, probably about 1510. He spent three years lying on his back on a trolley, looking up and painting. Imagine the mess he was at the end. He was a funny, funny fellow. But he, wrote, he painted this extraordinary riot of stories and um, things from the Old Testament particularly, prophets and sibyls and angels and just amazing stories. And the thing is a plethora, it's a riot of art representing some of the nature of God. Now, if you were to go into the Sistine Ceiling, it was, which I originally did, and throw your head up to try and look at it, immediately you will get a crick in the neck and probably damage yourself. And so in their wisdom, the Vatican authorities put in a system of mirrors at this sort of level, lectern level, all the way around the chapel so that you could walk in, just take the first breath and then just look down and walk systematically around seeing everything perfectly reflected. Jesus is the mirror. Jesus is if, looking up, you would have a theological crick in your neck. You cannot comprehend the Father. You cannot begin to imagine what the Trinity all means. But Jesus was the physical embodiment. He was the incarnation. He was the one that made it possible. He is the mirror. He perfectly reflects all the attributes that we would want to know about God. Jesus is amazing. He of whom Lord Tennyson insisted his character was more wonderful than the greatest miracle. Dostoevsky said, I believe there's no one lovelier, no one deeper, no one more sympathetic, no one more perfect than Jesus. This is the Jesus we're talking about whom Martin Luther wrote about. He said, Luther said he ate, he drank, he slept, was weary, sorrowful, rejoicing. He wept and he laughed, he knew hunger and thirst and sweat. He toiled, he prayed. And then Luther said, there was no difference between him and other men, save only this, that he was God and he knew no sin. But that is so, you know, we can engage with a man that bled and sweated and wept and agonized and howled at the tomb of his friend. So all that he was and all that he did cries out, of both his humanity and his divinity. Jesus was wonderfully human and gloriously divine. Son of Mary, coarse. Son of God, absolutely. All that Jesus is, and then we move on and we say, well, all that Jesus did, what did he do? Why is he so mesmerizing? Why do we just get stuck in the gospels over and over just reading these stories? Athanasius, 
was one of the church fathers in the fourth century. How recently did you read Athanasius? I am flagrantly showing off. <laughs> Athanasius, great hero of mine, and he wrote this, and he said, if we were to try and remember the achievements of our Savior, it would be like gazing over the open sea and trying to count the waves. Which I think is beautifully poetic. It's exactly what it's like. Jesus lived an extraordinary and exemplary life. And here's another thing that is interesting. Einstein, I mean, honestly, from Athanasius to Einstein, you have got to be impressed. <laughs> Einstein said, as a child, I received instruction both in the Bible and the Talmud. I am a Jew, but I am enthralled, listen to this, I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. And then he said, no one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth was ever filled with such life. I mean, this is one of the greatest minds that ever was. I mean, we're talking a physicist, a philosopher, and a right clever fella. And he said that he was entranced, enthralled by this luminous figure whose personality pulsates in every page. Of course, as he finished, I mean, this part, you think of Jesus, his kindness, his sweetness, his gentleness to anyone in distress, his outrage at injustice and wickedness, which I love. The fun of his company and his camaraderie. We had once had a, a um, senior, senior legal figure in the House of Lords in London at the end of the 20th century, Lord Hailsham, and he wrote, he became a Christian when he was at Oxford, and he wrote this, he talked about um, this happy Glorious man. This is a top academic. This happy and glorious man whose mere company filled his companions with delight. That's what I love about Jesus. He is such fun. He is such a delight. He's such a joy to be with. We have such a laugh. I just think he's so, you know, as, as I said before, this Christian life, my friends, my brothers and sisters, is so stinking hard that it's got to be some fun. It's got to be fun. Don't you think? Oh, please, give me a bit of fun. When we started our church in London, which was now over 30 years ago, and we were just a little small group. We were just four of us to start with. John and me and our two boys who were six and six months. I mean, we had a very big dream and a very small workforce. <laughs> we did. That's how it began. I mean, looking back, it was lunatic, but it was amazing, and God has blessed us. However, at the beginning, we would have a little house group in our room, in our drawing room, and our rooms are very small in London. I mean, you know about that. Tiny place. And we had, I was, because there was nobody else, I was the worship leader. <laughs> Don't mock. I was. I was the worship leader, and I had an electronic little keyboard, and I played, and we, the Spirit of God in His mercy came every time. We had a lovely time. It really was. And anyway, one evening, I'd finished, I'd finished doing the worship, and I looked across the room, at the far side of the room, where my very pretty chest was, desk, I saw, and I've never had one before or since, I saw an open vision of Jesus. I've never done it before or since. And I didn't see His face. I saw Him from here down, and He was surrounded by the boys, the lads the disciples, and they were all in a little circle. They all had white rings and sandals on their feet, and they'd been out on the road, obviously. And they were chat, chat, chat. There was a terrific buzz around them. And I was watching, mesmerized, and he turned around and looked, came towards me, and he said, I heard him say, I am only asking you to mimic me. 
And it was so profound. But you see, the point was, it wasn't just go and do what I did and go and pray for the sick and go and cast out the demons, which I take as part of our job description. The mimicking was in the fun. They were having such a ball. The men and Jesus and everybody else, and they were talking and chatting and they were comparing war stories. And I'm going to tell you one or two of my war stories in a minute. Just stories that tell you about how amazing this stuff is and how, how mesmerizing is the personality of our Lord Jesus. His teaching. Think of his teaching. The authority, the inarguability of his teaching. As he finished teaching the Sermon on the Mount, which was probably the greatest sermon never preached, with great respect to all around here, probably the greatest ever. It came close, but, you know, it was the best. Greatest sermon ever preached, the finest wisdom ever offered, the most practical advice ever given. Matthew wrote this in the Gospels. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he talked as one who had authority. You can take it to the bank. I'm reading a book. I don't know whether it's reached here yet. It's just published in London. And it's by a historian. It's a man called Tom Holland. And he's a very um, weighty historian. And his speciality is ancient history, Greek, Rome, and indeed before that. And he has written a book. And it starts with Greek and Roman culture. And it goes all the way through to current day woke culture which I confess I do not understand. I'm not terribly sure I even represent. However, it's a, a, it's a huge view, a huge arc of history. And during the course of his writing, he has come to faith in Jesus Christ because his thesis was that the Judeo and the Christian way of life underpins all our current civilizations and societies, whether we recognize it or not. And it is a phenomenal book. It's a fabulous, powerful, interesting book. It's called Dominion. And he speaks of the dominion of world history, but he's talking about the dominion of the Christian world. And he said this of Jesus. His manner of teaching was nothing like that of a philosopher. Those who paraded their virtue and condemned the faults of others, the Pharisees, he dismissed as painted tombs heaving with maggots and corruption. Well, tell that to Washington or Downing Street. I mean, honestly, he was incredibly brave. He was particularly tender with sinners, dining with Jews who violated the law. He sat beside a well and talked with a foreigner, a pagan, a woman. He allowed an erstwhile prostitute to bathe his feet with her perfume and to wipe them with her untressed hair. He had a genius for simile, and in his parables, his illustrations were drawn from the world and the humble quite as much from that of the reality of the wealthy and the wise. As Holland says, he drew his illustrations from the world of swineherds, servants, and sowers. And there's never been teaching like it. Just wonderful. He lived an extraordinary life, did our Jesus, and he died the most excruciating imaginable death. Because death by crucifixion, as you know, was the most vicious, cruel way of killing and torture ever devised by man. It was the ultimate expression of man's inhumanity to man, as the prayer book says. Imagine the ignominy. Imagine flesh nailed into wood. Imagine being on a rubbish dump and a recycling center. 
in between two absolute rogues and villains. Imagine the pain. Imagine the blood. Imagine the stench. Imagine the flies. Imagine the sweat. Imagine the swearing and the blasphemy. Unspeakably awful. And yet Jesus, our Jesus, our amazing Jesus, the one who's such fun to be around, the one who has answers to everything, our Jesus, voluntarily, knowingly, because he knew that he alone must die, went for it, went to the cross. He alone can take the blows, carry the can, stand in the line of fire. He alone can spring the cage, which sets us all free. And in his freedom, oh my goodness, is there joy. Peter writes, for Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, in other words, him for us, to bring us to God. And in Revelation, John wrote, Jesus Christ who loves us and has set us free by his blood. It was an extraordinary life, an excruciating death, a glorious resurrection, and it's that that we celebrate and it's that that our society needs to hear about. And it's that that we need to take outside the doors. And it's that that we need to tell our Uber drivers and our office friends and our families and our neighbors as we gossip the gospel over the garden fence. And alongside it, we minister. We do the things that Jesus did. I'm watching the clock and I'm going too long, so I'm going to have to cut and go quite quickly and tell you. I was going to tell you my own story and how I came to all this stuff. I was, a, I mean, it is quite interesting. I was brought up a Presbyterian. Welsh mother, Scottish father, total Celt, not a drop of English blood. You'll be glad to hear. And I just, I just loved it. I went to church every Sunday of my life. And only in my mid-twenties, only in my mid-twenties did I discover Jesus for myself through the prayers of a girl that I shared with at university who said that she would pray every day until the girl in her room came to know Jesus. That's a short form of a long story. I went to St. Andrew's University in Scotland as did John, that's where we met, as did indeed Prince William and his wife Kate, and we hope they're ever going to be so happy as we are. So that's our heritage, St. Andrews. St. Andrews, St. Andrews University, which was like Oxford in that they burnt to a crisp men who believed in the scriptures. And we were trained as students to walk around the cobbles on the streets where men had burned for this stuff. And it just, it burnt into me something so deep. This is so precious. We can sit here on a Sunday morning, comfy as you like, and go out into a lovely morning and pot around the farmer's market. There were men and women who died for this stuff. Who went to the stake. Who got burnt to a crisp. That we could have what we have. It's amazing. It's amazing what they did. And so that got very seared into my soul. But I was born, as they say, into an anti-charismatic stable. I was taught. Because I only came to Jesus properly. As a true Christian, I would say. In my 20s. And I was born into this stable. And I was told that everything that was funny or weird had died out at the end of the Book of Acts, which I thought was a shame, because that seemed to be all the fun bit. However, that was how I was taught. And I was instructed to take a little nail scissors to my New Testament and to snip out anything that would seem to be weird. Well, there was, oh my gosh, when you start, healings, prophecies, demons, they went for completely, um, uh, speaking in tongues, don't even mention, all that stuff, and some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you have been there. And I was, do you know, I was left with a very, very insubstantial, filleted, ineffective New Testament. And then I married John, and he was as bad as I was, I should say. I mean, we were both incredibly, you know, we were, we were 
keen Bible people. We knew the scriptures. We loved the scriptures. We'd seen people burnt for the scriptures. Therefore, we were not going to give up on the scriptures. And then we discovered that the scriptures are so full of the spirit of God. They're so full of healing. They're so full of the demonic. They're so full of the prophetic. They're so full of the things that we have, the equipping of the Holy Spirit. They're full of it. And so we began to change our tune, and God struck me down. I got meningitis. I was 31 years old. I just married John after a four-year engagement. Bliss, finally to be married. Then struck down with meningitis. We were working in a parish, which was an charismatic. They were all charismatic. They were all smiley and friendly and, you know, and we weren't. But we thought that God had taken us there in order to sort them out. And that in our arrogance, I swear to you, upon the book, I swear, we went to try and sort them out. We thought, these people are really off track. We'll help them. So I got meningitis and was terribly ill for weeks. And in the end, I crawled to church one night and our vicar said to me, my dear Eleanor, you're not at all well, are you? And I remember thinking, if that's the gift of discernment, my friend, I could have told you that without even coming here. And then he said, I want you to come to the staff meeting tomorrow morning, and we're going to pray for you. And I thought, oh, you're bearing I cringed. My hair on the back of my neck went up, and I said to John, I can't bear it. He said, we are really in bad place. We love these people. They're very fine people. We need to trust them, and we're going to go to a staff meeting. So we did. And I thought to myself, I know what will happen. Monday morning, smiles, friendly, sweet sit me on a chair in the middle of the room, exposed, horrible. Come around me in a circle, intense, vulnerable. And then they're going to put their hands on me, which is invading your personal space and physical. Didn't want that. And I know the worst thing's going to happen. They're going to pray in tongues over me. Oh, my gosh. And so John said, we've got to go for it. We've got to go for it. So, of course, we came to the prayer meeting, and uh, the, the staff meeting that morning. And it did turn out, and I have to boast at this point, I was a great deal more prophetically gifted than I had realized. <laughs> Everything I thought would happen did. <laughs> All smiles and friendship. Come along, Ellie. I love you. See, I'm so sorry. They sat me in the middle of the room. Awful. Circle around me. And then they converged on me like a sort of rug scrum I don't know what they would call that in... <laughs> Super Bowl terms, but it's a mess. <laughs> Lent over me, laid their questionably clean hands upon my person, and then jabbered. It sounds like lots of people knitting at the same time, for me. But do you know what happened? You'll never guess. Instantaneously, irreversibly healed of severe meningitis, from which I have never had another symptom headache to this day. That's the Lord. And that's what Jesus does. And that's why he's so amazing. And I haven't got time to do all the rest of this stuff that I've got. I mean, I'm just warming up. There's so... Can I do a few more? This is so wonderful, people. It's so good. It's so good. And what I want to say to you is, it's everything Jesus is, everything that he ever did and does, continues to do, even to naughty people like me. But the last thing I want to say to you is that he calls us to something. He calls us to do the same things. And he calls us and he gives us two, he equips us in two ways. He gives us the power of his Holy Spirit and he shares with us his authority. Now people, that's the key. Of course you love Jesus. Of course you want to affect your communities. Of course you want to make a difference. Let me tell you about my neighbor in London. 
sweet, sweet woman, four children, married to a lawyer, young mother, and we went for coffee one morning. She had four little ones. She's come to, she came to faith in Jesus, gossiping the gospel over the garden fence. It's really, really worthwhile. So she had come to faith, and then we went out for coffee in Wimbledon Village, and she said, Eleanor, I've got this terrible lump in my tummy. And now she's a young mother, okay? It was a free-floating lump, and it was the size of a large orange. And she told me about it. Well, what would you do if someone told you that? Faith, zoop. But then I knew that I had to say something and pray for her because Jesus said, if you love me, you do these things. Not in case it works or in case it doesn't work or it might or it might not. He said, if you love me, pray for these people. So I said to her, well, let's go home and I'll pray. And I prayed for her and I, my faith was low and I said, and my authority thing was a bit wobbly. And I just prayed that God would shrivel her lump. Shriveling prayer. It's worth, it's a good one shrivel. So she then went off. She had surgery booked. It was emergency. And so um, she went away for a half term with her husband and the children, and they came back on the Monday. And she came into me and she said, Eleanor, I think it's a bit less. I said, do you mean shriveled? And she said, well, it could be a little bit. And now, of course, faith rises, doesn't it? A little bit. Oh, this is, this is, this is good. Now, this was Monday. Mother was due in on, children were to be told on Wednesday, mother was due on Thursday, surgery was booked for Friday. Monday, I said, well, come on, we're going to pray again. And I prayed for her, and then she went back to the, um, whoever it was, specialist that afternoon for a follow-up x-ray. There was nothing there. She sent round her medical notes to me, and across the notes, she had scrawled, it's gone. I've got the paper back at home. It's completely gone. So the children were never told. Mother was cancelled. Very good thing. Um, surgery was off. And she lived to tell the tale. Do you know, these are the things we get to do. These are the things we get to do. And I'll tell you one more, which is very sweet, um, of some friends who, who went... Because, you see, we do this out of obedience. We pray for people. We pray, we, we try and do what Jesus did. Jesus said, mimic me. Be my disciple, be my follower. Just mimic me. Do what I did. If you love me, obey my commandments. I know I love him with all my heart, and therefore I'm going to try and do my best to do what he said. So anyway, there was a, one of our churches, we train people on how to go out to the streets and pray for sick people. Now that's brave, but it's also very teachable. Jesus trained his disciples, they went out, then they came back and he trained them some more and off they went again. It's all very transferable, teachable, learnable. So there was a couple and they were doing this little course on a Saturday morning. And the church had told them about how you go to the streets and you pray that God would show you somebody that it might be useful for you to engage with. And they also gave them very sensibly little bars of chocolate as sort of visual aids. And you would go to whoever it was and say, um, say something like, I know, you'll pray, and then you think there's somebody I might pray for. And you would say something like, look, I know you're going to think I'm absolutely bonkers, but I am a Christian and I know there's a God in heaven and I know that he loves you. And I wondered if there's anything I could pray for for you. It's interesting how often that works. It's scary, but it does. Anyway, this was a middle-aged couple. They'd never done anything like it before, so they were dead nervous and they got all their... I mean, the chocolate was practically melted in their hands. You know, it was like that. And they went out into the streets, and they saw this couple coming towards them, young couple, boy and a girl, and they said, I think it's, that's, so they said, and so they said, um, they stopped and said, now look, uh, you will think we're awfully, 
awfully funny and slightly crazy, but we are Christians and we believe there's a God in heaven and we know that he loves you. And we just wondered if there was anything that we could do for you today or pray for. It turned out that the girl of the couple, they weren't married, the girl had that morning cried out into open space. God, if nothing good happens to me today, I'm going to end it all. And she was met by a slightly nervous, rather afraid, middle-aged couple who'd never taken a risk before, who gave her a bar of chocolate, and on the chocolate there was the address of the church, and the next morning she came to the church and she got saved. And that woman is heading for heaven because somebody took a risk and somebody was prepared to do what Jesus said to do. Just give it a whirl, people. Just give it a try. Just give it a go. And, it's, and the thing is, he does, you know, he does give us his Holy Spirit and he gives us his authority. Oh, so many things to tell you. One last one. We have authority, people. So I was in a church in London. It was just over a year ago now. And a couple came and said, look, we're really struggling because we can't bear children. Well, I happen to love that particular thing to pray for. I love to pray for. And I've seen people conceive babies, and it's been sweet. Anyway, um, I prayed for this couple and then went back to that church exactly one year later. And they presented me with this little bundle in very bright pink, three months old. I mean, honestly, just like that. The authority of God that we have. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But I will not be put off from the times that it doesn't in order to try for the times that it does. There are babies now in existence. There are bodies that have been healed. There are demons that have been sent packing. There are broken-hearted people who are in a better place than they were because we've taken a few risks. And that's all I'm saying to you. And I think, I mean, now I really don't know if I'm out on the ice here, but I think this is what you're for, people. You have a room full of hundreds of amazingly good-looking, altogether people who need to get out of their seats and out of this place and go and start to do the stuff. And this Holy Spirit, it's the Holy Spirit, and he's going to galvanize you into action. He's going to catapult you out of your pews, out of your pulpits, onto your pavements, and you are going to see things happen and difference be made. And is that a good call or what? Yeah. Now I'll stop. There you go. There you go. Jesus said, I, you, he said to them, you wait in Jerusalem for the promise of my father. You will receive the Holy Spirit. You will receive the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. You, my brothers and sisters, will be my witnesses on Union Street and 4th and 5th in the farmer's market, in the whole of Brooklyn, in the whole of New York, in this needy, needy, desperate nation. You can be witnesses. We can be, we can be history changers, community busters, given the power of the Holy Spirit. And of course, the last thing Jesus said as he was gathered his disciples together, he said, all of that, that was the key, all authority has been given to me, therefore you go baptizing all nations in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you, which was pray for the sick, preach the gospel, go to the prisons, feed the hungry, do the stuff. So you can have the Holy Spirit, and you can share his authority. Why don't you stand? I'd love to pray that for you, if I may, if that's appropriate.
One of the oldest prayers of the Christian world, of the Christian church, of course, is Vene Spiritus Sanctus. Come, Holy Spirit. And that's what I'd like to pray right now. So put your stuff down. Uh, sometimes we say, open your hands before the Lord, not that it's anything particularly liturgical. or it just, it, To me, it just speaks of, Lord, here I am, empty-handed, but open-handed and ready for you. So come, Holy Spirit. I invite you to come with power on your people in this place this morning. Lord Jesus, we recognize you are amazing. Your very presence pulsates through these places tonight, just right now. We see it in the Gospels, Lord, but we feel it in our hearts. We feel it this morning. We feel your personality, and it pulsates through us, Lord Jesus. We're so grateful that we're yours and you're ours. And now, Lord, would you, as you promised to do, would you give your Holy Spirit to those that are asking you right now, in this moment? You often find that when the Holy Spirit starts moving, children do that. It's been often noticed. So take no notice of any squealings. And Lord, I pray too that as believers, we would come to recognize that we have that authority of which you spoke. Authority to go out and pray for the sick. Authority to do battle with demons and just quietly, authoritatively send them packing and set people free. Authority to bind up the brokenhearted. Authority over those who struggle with their mental health and their emotional dislocation. To come, Lord. Come and bless your church. Come and bless them. And because I'm a visitor and don't really know any better, I would love to suggest, I think there are two categories of people I'd love us to pray for most particularly. And if you'd like to come forward, that would be very appropriate. If you just want to stay where you are and ask someone to pray for you and lay a hand on you, you could do that. But I think there's a category of people who've never actually done any of these things, never lent, laid your hand on anybody, never actually had a, a, a word of insight from the Lord. But listening to these stories and listening to what could be, your, your heart is fluttering, your color is rising, you feel something that you didn't feel before, which is the presence of the Holy Spirit. And if you'd like to, then come forward to, say, by left. And then there are, I think, a group of people, and this is, I mean, this is a random suggestion, but I think the Lord said to me this morning, there are people who have got lumps and bumps in their bodies. And they may not be a severe one like my friend next door, but we have authority, people. And if you've got lumps or bumps or indeed anything else that is causing you concern in your physical body this morning, why didn't you come down on this side? And I think there's a team of people, is that right, who we be very happy to pray for you? Does this seem appropriate? Is this in order? So why don't you come? Ready, steady, go. Thank you, Lord. 
Lord, we recognize your presence. Many of you are engaged with the Lord right in this moment. There are some of you who can't even hear what I'm saying because you're caught up with the person of Jesus and what he's saying to you and the feelings that he's giving you. And that's lovely. So stay there. Just stay with him. And for others of you who aren't very sure, look around the room and just watch because that's perfectly appropriate. That's how we learn to see what's going on. Jesus said, I only do what I see the Father doing. So watch to see what's going on. And then I think we carry on worshiping. Is that right? So Lord, bless them. Church, after the crucifixion, uh, Jesus' closest friends were uh, huddled together behind a locked door. And it says that they were uh, hiding for fear. And the reality was there was a lot to be afraid of. (laughs) They needed to have the door locked because uh, their leader had been killed. No doubt that they would be coming for the rest of them to lock them up. And There was no way to go out. There was nowhere to go. They shouldn't have unlocked the door. They couldn't have gone out. They needed it. It made sense. The logical move was to be hidden behind that door in fear. And that is where Jesus showed up and totally changed the reality of the situation. He showed up and he spoke peace to them. My peace I give to you. A resurrection type of peace. This is not going back to something in your past. This is going on into a new type of reality where the peace of Christ, the resurrection authority peace of Christ rules in that space and says, this locked door can be opened now. This this reality inside this room can be changed now. And so if you are longing for that in your life, I know there is hunger and thirst in this room. I just want to invite you to come forward and just to pray, to put your hands out and to let us, uh, let us cry out to our God and say, in spite of the locked doors, in spite of all the reasons that we shouldn't, in spite of all the reasons that it shouldn't work and won't work, we're just going to ask that the resurrection power of Jesus would be present here to embrace us, to speak peace to us. So I want you to think about the thing in your life that you think will not move, the thing in your life that you think will not change, the thing in your life that you think, I can't do anything about this. And I want you to hold that right in front of you. And then I want you to know the, the, the resurrected Jesus comes right into that locked door, into that space, and says, peace over it peace over it and he changes the fundamental structure of that reality church if if you are prompted by the spirit in any way to receive that would you come forward and just stand with your hands open let us minister the grace of that resurrected jesus to one another let's pray for him to break in in unbreakable situations of course it doesn't make sense we're calling on the authority of a resurrected jesus anyway to see what he will do so i just want to give you another moment to come forward and receive prayer Uh, Pray for those around you right where you are. There's no magic people in this room. Everyone gets to play. Pray as the Spirit leads. Let's invite. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Lord Jesus. Come into our locked rooms. Come into these places that will not change. Come and bring healing. Come and change reality.
come forward right now if the Holy Spirit is prompting you. We're, we're gonna pray for you and we're gonna see how God moves. And then in just a little bit, we'll, we'll eat the meal and we'll go on out into our day. So come forward as the Spirit's prompting you. Father, if what the scriptures say of you is true, then that is reason to gather in a room like this on a Sunday. If Jesus, what you said and did in the gospels is true, that is a reason to minister to one another in a space like this. And then we praise you, God, that you would go beyond what we would ask or imagine, that you would give us so many specific gifts of grace. And I just pray in Jesus' name that everyone who is longing to receive from you, God, would. Whatever is necessary to happen so they would receive from you wherever they are. God, you are the God who gives a rich welcome. When we come home to you, you are running out to meet us. And even if we've been at the house the whole time and we're just frustrated, you are walking out, you are running out to meet us. Continue your ministry in our midst, Lord Jesus. Continue your healing, your way, truth, life-giving, your resurrection ministry in our midst. Sisters and brothers, receive this benediction. May you fully know, may you fully know all that Jesus is, all that he has done, and all that he has called you to. May you fully know that. In the name of Jesus, above every name, we sing and pray and believe. Amen. Go in peace.